0: Read together, the first nine verses of Ecclesiastes 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, But his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better the miscarriage than he. For it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after wind. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is our desire that the living word may be accompanied with your Holy Spirit and that you may quicken it in our hearts and that we may understand it and that we may hear your voice in the pages of Scripture. Give us acute and accurate understanding of what it is that is here and how it fits with the context so that we may offer to you hearts prone to obedience and hearts ready to obey what is in scripture. We thank you for your love for us and we thank you for your generosity and graciousness in giving us your word and we pray that you would use it to sanctify us and to continue that good work that you have done in us which you started on the day that you brought us to faith in Christ. May you be glorified through these things in our study here together we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the title of the message today, as you might have guessed from the bulletin, is The Affliction of Riches. Now, if your first or last name happens to be Rich, I want you to understand that I am in no way implying that you are an affliction upon other people, as we are talking about a different type type of riches, namely wealth and riches and the material prosperity that sometimes we enjoy in this world. And we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we finished up the fifth chapter last week, and we have started this sort of theme at the beginning of, or in the middle of chapter five, at the beginning of verse eight, where Solomon talks about the poor. And he speaks about the poor for two verses, and then he starts talking about wealth and riches and material prosperity. And the bulk of this section really is about the riches and the dangers of them and the things that accompany those riches and how, in many ways, those riches are an affliction upon us. And we are continuing into chapter 6 because though there is a chapter break there, we ought to ignore it because Solomon is not changing topics at all. He is continuing with the same theme that has been running all the way through chapter 5. In chapter 5, we have looked at the ways in which riches disappoint us. Again, we're not talking about if your first or last name is Rich. (laughs) Though you may disappoint people, that's not what we're talking about today. We've talked about the ways in which riches disappoint us. We have talked about men who hoard riches, men who acquire riches, men who lose riches, uh, men who waste their riches, and... And uh, now today, and, and men who receive riches as a gift from God, and with that, the ability to enjoy those riches, that wealth. And now today in chapter 6, we're looking at a man. By contrast with the end of chapter 5, we're looking at a man who is given riches and wealth and honor, but is not given the ability to enjoy those things from the hand of God. So chapter 5 ends with one of what we call the enjoyment passages in Ecclesiastes where Solomon commends to us an, an enjoyment and a delight in some of the simple blessings of God that come our way, enjoying the fruit of our labor. That to enjoy the fruit of our labor is the reward for our toil and it is the gift of God. And so we ought to receive these things from the hand of God, both the enjoyment of the fruit of the labor itself and the labor. These are gifts from God. And when we enjoy those things, that is God's gift to us He gives us not only the gift, but also the enjoyment of it. And now in chapter 6, we have the opposite of that. A man who is given riches and wealth and honor, but that those gifts are not accompanied with the gift or ability to enjoy the riches and the wealth and the honor. And it is kind of a bleak passage, uh, though I'm not going to really try to communicate to you the bleakness of it. It is kind of a bleak passage, and Solomon has a very negative view of of the situation of being given riches and wealth, and yet not being given the ability to enjoy them. Now, one caveat before we jump into the passage. I'm talking a lot about enjoyment in the last few days, or last few weeks, uh, in this passage. And I want you to remember that we are not, I'm not talking about, nor is Solomon describing, a self-centered, godless, hedonistic pursuit of pleasure in itself. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about removing God from the picture and just diving headlong into whatever pleasure presents itself and enjoying that and trying to find meaning and purpose in pleasure. Solomon has already described that back in chapter two. Do you remember he he said, I will test myself with pleasure. I will see if there is any benefit to pleasure, if there is any goodness in pleasure and meaning in pleasure. And so in a very methodical way, Solomon described how he stimulated his body with wine and he stimulated his, his senses with music and he had many concubines and wives. And Solomon says in chapter 2 verse 10, everything that my heart desired, I did not withhold from myself anything. If I wanted it, I got it and I took it and I indulged myself in it in his pursuit to find meaning in pleasure. And what was the conclusion of all of that? It's vanity, emptiness, and striving after wind. So we're not talking about, we talk about enjoying good gifts. We're not talking about the hedonistic, self-centered, godless pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself. We're talking about the ability to enjoy the simple everyday pleasures like eating and drinking and our labor, the wife that God has given to us, our children, lots of days those simple gifts that God has given to us we 're talking about the ability to enjoy those that is a gift of God so now so let 's look at this man and here 's going to be basically our outline this morning we 're going to look at the the horrible condition of this man who has given gifts without the ability to enjoy those gifts that 's verses one to six and then Solomon offers us some some concluding thoughts in verses seven through nine, and we are going to get all the way through these uh, nine verses this morning, and this is going to conclude our or talk about, or look into riches and wealth and honor and the things that accompany it. So let's look first of all at the abundance that is given without the enjoyment. Beginning in verse 1, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is a vanity and a severe affliction. He calls this condition a vanity, which means emptiness and meaninglessness, and a severe affliction. This is the affliction of riches. To have the riches without the ability to enjoy them is emptiness, and it is a severe affliction. At the beginning of verse 1, Solomon says, It is an evil I have seen under the sun. And he says it is an evil that is prevalent among men. The NASB translates it, "a prevalent among men. The ESV, a more modern and, and uh, very good translation, translates it, it weighs heavy upon mankind. Now, it can be translated either way because... The word that is used here that the NASB translates as prevalent among men can be used to describe something that is great in quantity, meaning there are lots of them, lots of examples of this thing. Or it can be used to describe something that is uh, heavy in its quality or profound in its quality. So it can describe either lots of something or something that is really weighty. And so the NASB, thinking that Solomon is describing the, the abundance of the times that you see this, says that this is a prevalent thing, this affliction. Seeing rich people without the ability to enjoy those riches is not a rare thing on the face of the earth. It is something that we see often. The ESV, thinking that Solomon is describing here, the quality of, of what he is speaking of, translates it, it is heavy upon mankind. Or it, is, it is It presses heavy upon us, meaning that when we see this, wherever we see it, this affliction weighs heavy upon us. Now, which one is it? I think it could be translated either way, And I don't think we need to choose between the two. And the reason I bring this up today is so that you can see that I think Solomon chooses this word for this very purpose, that it can mean either one of them, and he probably means both. It is both something that we see often, and it is something that when we see it, it's vexing. It weighs upon us heavily, and it ought to. Do we see this often? Yeah, go to Hollywood. Hollywood is filled with people who have riches and wealth and fame, and honor, and applause, and everything that goes with it. And are they happy? They look happy in front of the cameras on the red carpet when they roll it all out, and they come up the red carpet, and they're smiling, and and they're with their their spouse, or their significant other, or their mistress, whoever they're with that weekend, their partner in some respect, they're with them. And so they look happy, they appear to be happy, but are they really happy? Hollywood is filled with people who have everything they have ever wanted, everything this world can offer them, and yet they're not happy. They're not content with it. Somebody just told me this last week that Beyonce, and I usually don't talk about Beyonce in my sermons, but Beyonce just bought a $108 million home. Is that going to make her happy? It's not going to make her any happier than a $100 million home or a $5 million home. not going to make her any happier. She's not going to be any more content when she moves into that with all the acreage and the five pools or whatever is involved with that. It's not going to bring her happiness and contentment. Hollywood is filled with people who have everything but have not been given the ability to enjoy it. So it is something that we see often. It is also something that when we see it, it is just this oppressive weight that rests upon somebody. You say, how oppressive is it? Well, when we see one of these people who has everything but doesn't enjoy it, and they go into rehab or they file for divorce or they commit suicide, then we get a glimpse at just how miserable they really are. Then we get a glimpse at it. And like fools, like fools... We wish we could have that, right? There's something attractive about it that so many people want. It is a vexing thing, it is a heavy thing, and it is something that we see commonly. So Solomon says, it is prevalent among man. Here is the man, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all he desires, and yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. I want you to notice some of the language that Solomon is using. He's using figurative language so that when he says a man has these things but he's not empowered to eat from them, eating there is not to be taken strictly literally as in just literally eating with his mouth as if God keeps him from being able to eat and so he starves to death. That's not what Solomon is describing. He's talking about being able to enjoy these good gifts like he has been describing all the way through chapter 5 and chapter 5 verses 18 to 20 particularly to be able to enjoy and delight in these things that God has given to him. Notice also that Solomon is using hyperbolic language here. Back in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, he speaks of riches and wealth. And in chapter 6, he heaps honor onto that. Is, is it riches and wealth that you want? Well, let's throw honor into the mix. You have all the fame and the reputation and the applause and all of the, the honor that comes with the riches and wealth. And so he, he adds honor to it. Notice also that he says, so that he lacks nothing of all that his soul desires. This is hyperbolic, exaggerative, uh, exaggerated, and superlative language. Of all that he wants, no matter what it is, this man that we're a picture, he lacks nothing. No matter what his soul desires, God has given it to him. Riches, wealth, honor, and everything that goes with it. He, he literally has nothing that he can desire more than what God has given to him. And this superlative and exaggerated hyperbole is going to go all the way through the passage because you'll notice in verse 3, Solomon speaks of a man who has a 100 children. And in verse 6, he speaks of a man who lives a 1,000 years twice. What is the point of all of the hyperbole that he is using? He is saying no matter what it is that you imagine, take it, double it, times it by ten, add all of this to it, multiply it by ten again. It doesn't matter how much of it you have of what you're talking about. Ten years, or ten children, or a hundred children. Eighty years, or two thousand years. Riches, or riches and wealth and honor of all that he desires. It doesn't matter what you can imagine. This man has given all of that, and yet he has not given what? The ability to enjoy those things. And I want you to notice that these two things, the riches and the wealth and the honor, the gifts, the the material things themselves, and the enjoyment of them are two separate and distinct gifts. And we talked about this last week. We must acknowledge the sovereignty of God in the giving of those gifts, whether we're talking about the gift of wealth and honor or even the ability to enjoy them. God is sovereign over those things. These two gifts do not necessarily go together. And Solomon's point is, we see a lot of instances where they don't go together. Where God gives the one without the ability to enjoy it. He gives one gift and he withholds for his purposes the other gift. And so these two things don't go together. We think they ought to, right? We think that to be rich is to enjoy the riches. How can you have it and not enjoy it? Right? You people who are without boats, like me, you look at somebody who has a boat and you think, how can you have a boat and not enjoy it? And then you get a boat and you guess what? You find out it's just something I throw money into constantly. Of course I can't enjoy this. Now, if I had a different boat, then that boat I could enjoy, right? We think that the ability to enjoy something is inherent in the thing itself. And that's not true. And we need to remember that. If I had a $108 million home, I would be able to enjoy that. No, not really. No. If God withholds from you the gift of enjoyment, it will be misery to you. 108 million, 250 million, name your price. It doesn't matter. If God does not give you the ability to enjoy the gift, you will not be able to enjoy it. God is sovereign over the gifts that he gives, all of them. If he is not, they're not gifts. They're something that is owed. And, and this is going to sound harsh to your ears, but listen carefully. God is free to give his gifts to whomever he wills, however he wills, for whatever purpose he wills. God owes sinful creatures nothing, absolutely nothing. If he owed it to us, it is not a gift and it is not grace. So whatever gift we are talking about, whether it is eternal life or repentance or faith or forgiveness, whatever it is, God is not obligated to give it to us. God is not obligated to offer it to us. So he gives riches and wealth and honor to some people. And guess what? The ability to enjoy it, he gives to some, but not all. That is entirely his prerogative, to accomplish whatever it is that God has purposed to accomplish in those things. So now then, that raises a question for us, actually two of them. How does God do this, and why would God do this? How does he do it, and why does he do it? Here's how he does it. In fact, we don't even have to go outside of our own context here in Ecclesiastes to figure out a number of ways, because as Solomon has been talking about riches and wealth, he's listed for us a number of examples of people who have wealth, but they don't enjoy them. In chapter 5, verse 8, he speaks of greedy government bureaucrats who come in and take it from you, right? That's one way somebody can have something and not be able to enjoy it because it is immediately taken from him. Or he has to protect it from uh, greedy government bureaucrats. In chapter 5, verse 10, he speaks of the lust for more. The man who loves money is never satisfied with money, and so he can't enjoy what he has because he's not satisfied with what he has. The, The lack of satisfaction, covetousness, robs us of the enjoyment of the gifts that we do have. It's not just that we want more. We can't even enjoy what we have because we're continually discontent with it. And so that's one way in which somebody has something but he doesn't enjoy it. If he's continually lusting after more and, and he loves money so much, he'll never be satisfied with money. Chapter 5 verse 11 describes the man who, who has all these things and the good things increase, and guess what? So do those who consume them. So the lawyer wants more and the agent wants more and the tax man wants more and the neighbor wants more and that long-lost cousin wants more and everybody hovers around it trying to take it from him and he has to be anxious over it and it causes him great anxiety and he's not even able to enjoy it because everybody else is trying to pilfer it. In chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, he describes the man who loses his wealth and hoards his wealth uh, and loses some of it through a bad investment. So those are all the different ways even Solomon is described here in the passage of men who have these things but are not given the gift to be able to enjoy them. What about the man who spends his days wringing his hands over the realization that he knows he's going to have to give up his wealth at the end of his life? And who knows whether he will have it, Solomon says in chapter 3. Who knows who is going to get it, a wise man or a fool? You don't know. You're going to give everything over to your kids? Are they going to handle it wisely or foolishly? Are they going to invest it and become millionaires, or are they going to squander it all away on wine, women, and song? Solomon didn't know that. He, he didn't know whether he was going to turn it over to somebody who even didn't deserve it, chapter 3 describes, the man who has not worked for it. And, and this frustrated Solomon. I've labored for these things, and I have to turn them over to somebody who has not labored for them, somebody who may be wise, may be a complete fool. This, he says, is vanity and a vexing evil. So those are all the different ways that Solomon has described in which we can have wealth and not enjoy it. Now, why would God do this? That's really the burning question, right? Why is it that God would give a gift and not give the ability to enjoy it? Before I give you three reasons that I think we can get from Scripture as to why God would do this, I want you to re- I want to remind you, He is obligated to give us nothing. So if one of these reasons grates against your, the grain of your being, I remind you, we are do-nothing from God. He doesn't need to give us the wealth. He doesn't need to give us the gift to enjoy it. He owes us nothing. The first reason that God could do this, the reason why He would do this, is as a judgment upon the wicked. this brings us back to Psalm 73, and I know I've mentioned this a few times in the last few weeks, but it's not because I'm trying to sell books. It's just because it ties in so well with what we're talking about here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It is under the purview and sovereignty of God that he can give a gift and not give the ability to enjoy that gift to an individual because his intention is to judge that individual. So that the wealth, which might be a blessing to the righteous, penitent man, is turned to be a curse of damnation upon an impenitent, unrighteous, unbeliever. All because God does not give, he gives him the gifts, but not the ability to enjoy the gifts. And so in not using his money well, and in not using his money for the glory of God, and in coveting and striving after more money and being abusive with the wealth that God has given to him, God withholds from him the ability to enjoy it as a judgment for his abuse of that good gift. That is a possibility. That's what Psalm 73 teaches, and that's a possibility. Uh, Henry, Matthew Henry writes this, He is weak indeed who has not the power to use what God gives him. For God gives him not that power, but withholds it from him to punish him for his other abuses of his wealth. Because he has not the will to serve God with it, God denies him the power to serve himself with it. Do you hear what he's saying? Because the man has the wealth, but he will not use it to serve God, God will deny him the ability to use that wealth to serve himself. And this is the just judgment of God. He can use wealth as a judgment upon unbelievers by giving them the wealth All that they think they desire and want, but not giving them the ability to enjoy it. A second reason, God gives riches, or God withholds the gift of enjoyment from some in order to demonstrate to all of us that riches themselves do not satisfy. This should be a demo. We ought to be able to see this, right? You look out out at the world, do you see people who have everything that you think we had always want that would bring us happiness and contentment, and yet they're not happy and content? And they're not satisfied, and they don't enjoy what they have? Do you see such people? If God has withheld from them the ability to enjoy that gift, it could be he has withheld it from some in order to demonstrate to all of us that these things do not satisfy and that they cannot satisfy. And the third reason is in order to direct our hearts to God himself. Because we as sinful creatures, apart from the regenerating grace of God, we are quite content to want and desire and embrace all of God's beneficent blessings. All of them. Just so long as God keeps his distance from us. Right? That is lost man. I want all of the good things that come from God. I want a great parking space. I want my best life now. I want food. I want clothing. I want shelter. I want material prosperity. I want a cleansed conscience. I want the ability to live my life. I want all of these beneficent blessings from God, but I want Him to keep His distance from me because I do not want His demands. I do not want Him to remind me that there is a judgment to come. I do not want Him to tell me what to do with those blessings. I do not want Him to tell me how to use those blessings. Keep God out of it, and I will just enjoy the gifts. That is fallen man. And in giving fallen man the gift, and then not giving them the ability to enjoy that gift, it reminds them, it points them to the God who Himself is able to give both the gift and the enjoyment of the gift. Warren Wiersbe said, If we enjoy the gift without the giver, it is idolatry, and the human heart can never be satisfied with that. To enjoy the gift and not the giver of the gift is idolatry. We can't be satisfied with that. God has created this world and he has created us in such a way that we cannot be satisfied in things because those things can never satisfy And in giving the gift and withholding the enjoyment of it, God demonstrates that, and he turns the hearts of people to him, and he judges the wicked. So I want you to notice now the burden of such a life. Look at verse 3. We are going to get all the way through verse 9. Verse 3, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. Uh, this is the burden of such a life, of, of living in this way. If a man has a hundred children and lives many years, uh, there are two things in Jewish thought and a Jewish way of thinking that were associated with the blessing of God. Lots of children and lots of days. Lots of years. Long life and a quiver full of children. Now, that is not to suggest that if you do not have children that God has not blessed you or that He has cursed you or that you're not worthy. It's not to suggest if you die young that you are less favored by God. It is just that these are two of the manifold ways in which God has blessed His people. Long life... And lots of kids. And so as Solomon de- is describing this, he is describing a man who is gifted in these two ways that Jews most associated with the blessing of God. He has lots of children. He has a hundred children, and he lives many days. Now, it is obvious to us, or at least it should be, that no monogamous relationship in this world can produce a hundred children, right? So it is obviously an exaggeration, though interestingly, and this is curious, one of Solomon's sons came close to this, hundred children. Rehoboam, I think it's 2 Chronicles 11, verse 21. It says that Rehoboam, he was the the Solomon's son who took over the kingdom when Solomon died. He had 88 children. Now, he had 18 wives and 60 concubines, so that's really not a a grand accomplishment. If you have that many, it's, he had 88 children, so he's very close to Having a hundred people, okay, so now, but most monogamous relationships, and that wasn't a monogamous relationship, so it's obvious that a monogamous relationship is not going to produce a hundred children. So what is Solomon doing? He's using exaggeration again. Maybe you think that happiness could be found in ten kids all right let's let's take ten and let's multiply it by a factor of ten. So you have a hundred children. Now obviously, anybody who has a hundred children would also have with it. A good supply of this world's goods in order to be able to provide for hundred children, because one child will suck your sustenance dry and put you in the poorhouse. Four will, a hundred would just absolutely wipe you out unless you were heaped blessing upon blessing in this life to be able to provide for a hundred children. So he is describing a man who is blessed beyond Jewish imagination—a hundred children. But it's interesting the psalmist says, but he doesn't enjoy good things in this life. And doesn't even enjoy a proper burial. Why does he talk about a proper burial? What in the Jewish mind was a proper burial? It was a burial in which your corpse was treated with respect and the loss of you was mourned. You were mourned. When you died, you were mourned. So somebody who didn't receive a proper burial is like somebody like Jezebel, who when she died, nobody batted an eye. They just tossed her in a grave. They didn't care about her. The dogs ate her. And, and they didn't. nobody mourned her death. That's an improper burial. So why does Solomon mention a proper burial in connection with having a hundred children? Because he is describing a man who, though he has a hundred children, not one of them mourns his passing. Not one. Out of a hundred kids, which you would think would give him all that he could desire in this life and enjoy, and at least give him a proper burial, this man dies and his passing is unnoticed, and he's not even mourned. Not one of his kids would provide for him a proper burial. That means this man is given everything in terms of Jewish blessing, the Jewish idea of blessing. He's given everything. He's given a hundred kids, but yet he doesn't even enjoy a proper burial. He doesn't even, he doesn't even enjoy the fact that he would be mourned when his children pass or when he passes by his children. So look at verse the end of verse 3. He says, Better is the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. What is he describing there? In the Jewish culture in ancient times, uh, miscarried or stillborn children were not given a name most of the time. And this was because it was believed that the the parents would mourn that child for a shorter period of time if there was no name associated with it. And they would allow that child who had been stillborn or miscarried to pass into obscurity. They wouldn't name it so that it would be forgotten, and the the grief of that would be born for a very short period of time, and, and there would be no reputation and no event and no memory associated, no painful memory associated with that name. And so... The stillborn child is better because it just goes into obscurity. It is better, Solomon says, to to never enter into this life than to enter into this life and be given all of these blessings and never be able to enjoy one of them. As one commentator rather, rather crassly stated it, it is better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry through your entire life. By being given all these blessings but not enjoy even one of them. Better to better than be forgotten in the beginning forever than to be remembered forever as the man who had a hundred children and not one of them mourned his death. Isn't that better? Isn't it better to be forgotten and never remembered than to be remembered as the guy who had a hundred children, but none of them loved him enough to give him a proper burial? Better the miscarriage than he. That's what Solomon is saying. Miscarriage goes into obscurity. Can you you imagine the pain of sitting at your deathbed, lying at your deathbed, knowing you had a hundred children surrounding you, and all they're doing is waiting for pops to pass away so they can divide divide the spoil? And that's all they're interested in doing? And then when you're gone, they're not going to mourn you at all. And to spend your final hours on the deathbed realizing that nobody's going to miss me when I pass, nobody cares enough to give me. I've received all of these blessings, and nobody cares enough to even give me a proper burial. It is better to be forgotten at the beginning, for you go into obscurity. Look at verse five. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. It goes from the darkness of the womb to the darkness of the tomb, and it skips over all of the vexation and the and and the. The anger and the frustration and the vanity and the pain and the strife, the death and disease of this life. It goes from one end to the other and it passes away and it never has to know all of this pain that we know, that Solomon is describing in this book. It never has to know that. It never has to know what it's like to receive all of these blessings but have to live with the frustration that you can't enjoy any of them. It never knows what it's like to have all of these blessings and yet not have your children mourn you when you pass. And so it is better off than he because it comes in futility, it goes into obscurity, it is forgotten And that's bleak, isn't it? That's how miserable it is to be given all those blessings and not be able to enjoy any of them. For whatever reason, it is. For God to withhold that gift. It never sees the sons and never knows anything. It is better off than he. And the ESV translates it, it is at rest rather than he. And again, it's a different translation because it can be translated two different ways. It is better off than he or it is at rest rather than he. In other words, he's contrasting the the stillborn child. It goes immediately to rest. But the other man, no, the other man has to live a whole life before he's able to rest. And what is that life filled with? We learn from Ecclesiastes, vanity and vexation and frustration and anxiety and all of the strife that exists. Better to just go immediately to rest than to have to suffer through all of that, receive those blessings and not be able to enjoy them. Look at verse 6 and here's another hyperbole hyperbole, uh, hyperbole, uh, statement, big statement, big words. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? That's a long life, right? A thousand years, a thousand years twice. What is Solomon saying? You think long life is associated with blessing or a sign of God's blessing? You think, if I could just live to be a hundred or a hundred and ten. Man, if I, could, if I could live to be 500 years old, wouldn't that be great? Just the compound interest would be great. It's just about the time the compound interest starts working for me now. They throw me in a grave and my kids take over and that's the way. And then they squander what it is. If I could just live to be 500 years old. Well, why don't you double that? Live to be a thousand. Let's double it again. What if you live to be a thousand years and you do it twice? Is that man more blessed? What does Solomon say? Do not all go to the same place. I mean, it's almost as if he doesn't even finish the thought. Verse 6, if a man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things... Do not all go to the same place? What's the conclusion? What is the same place? It's not, he's not describing heaven and hell. He's not saying everybody goes to heaven or everybody goes to hell. He's not describing eternal destinies at all. He's speaking in terms of this life under the sun. The same place is death. Both the miscarried child and the man who lives 2,000 years, they both, their lives both end in what? They both end in death. Both of them go to the same place. So if you live a thousand years twice, 2,000 years old, but you fail to enjoy good things, you're still going to die. You're eventually going to go to rest, but you're going to spend 2,000 years of vexing and toil and frustration over not being able to enjoy what God has given to you, whereas the stillborn child goes immediately to rest and never knows that vexation or that frustration. So better off is the stillborn child. He is immediately at rest. Now there are concluding statements in verses 7 to 9. These concluding statements are kind of perplexing for a lot of folks because some commentators say this is part of the next section. I don't think it is because I don't think that these statements can be understood unless it's understood in light of verses 1 to 6. These are Solomon's concluding statements. You can see from verse 8 that he talks about the poverty there, the poor man. And so I think he is describing the same things that he has been describing since chapter 5, verse 8. So that's why we're taking these and viewing these as concluding statements. And they're kind of somewhat bewildering, but I think we, as we walk our way through, you'll see what Solomon is saying. First, verse 7, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. Now, with the, the reference to satisfaction, this is why I think it belongs with the previous section. Solomon is coming full circle with something he started in verse 10. He who loves money is not what? Satisfied with money. So now he gets to the end of this section, and he is repeating that in a similar way. He's talking about our appetites. All of our work, all the work that a man does is for food, for his belly, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. So we work so that we can get money, so that I can buy food, so that I can eat it, so that I can get strength, so I can go back to work, and buy food and get money so I can eat it and get strong so that I can go back to work. Man, that sounds like that vexing and horrible cycle of life that we saw in chapter one, doesn't it? And yet the appetite is not satisfied. And here's Solomon's point. We are insatiable creatures. That is the reality of who we are and what we are. Life in this world, under the sun, in this sin-cursed fallen world, we are insatiable. And we ought to be reminded of this every time we sit down for a meal, reminded of the fact that just as this appetite will never be finally and fully satisfied, neither will any of my other appetites in life. No matter what it is that I desire, I will never be able to get enough of that if I give myself over to it. And this... This constant frustration and searching for satisfaction in life, it drove Solomon to the point of almost insanity and madness. It was something that was vexing to him, and it, it frustrated him, and he describes it as vanity. So we are these insatiable creatures. So you can work and you can have, and Solomon is now concluding this, and he is reminding us, just as your appetite is never satisfied, your desire for riches will never be satisfied. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. Verse 8. Next concluding thought, for what advantage does a wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? Now, what is what are those two questions worth? What do they mean? What is How are they connected to this context? And this is why some commentators have a hard time seeing that these are part of the previous section. These are perplexing questions until you understand something about Jewish thought. Let me describe the Jewish think, way of thinking to you, and then we'll go back to these two questions. In the Jewish way of thinking, wisdom was... Wisdom was seen as a way to show, uh, as something to show the path to riches. Wisdom was connected with riches and accumulating riches. And there is a connection to this. You see this in Proverbs, because the Jews who were steeped in wisdom literature would read in the Proverbs that a wise man does this and he receives the blessing or the benefit. So riches had a connection with, or sorry, wisdom had a connection with acquiring riches in this life, in the Jewish mind, because of what we read in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere. And there is some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. The one who is is wise is going to spend his money differently. He's going to spend his time differently. He's going to invest differently, save differently. He's going to use things differently. He's going to be diligent. He thinks about the future. And so that wise approach to life will inevitably, in most cases, end up producing riches and wealth. Whereas a fool spends his time for today, lives for the day, doesn't think about tomorrow, uh, puts his hand in the dish and doesn't even have enough energy or ambition to put it back to his mouth. He goes out and plants his seed and then he just lets harvest come and he lets the harvest go into the winter and he doesn't harvest his food. That is all the foolish c- conduct in, in Proverbs. And so there's a connection between foolishness and losing money and being brought to poverty. That's how a Jew would think. And it's appropriate. So now go back to chapter uh, verse 8. What advantage does the wise, have, wise man have over the fool? If, if having wisdom allows me to accumulate riches, and then I have the riches, but I am not given the gift of enjoying those riches, then tell me again, what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? The fool doesn't have the riches, and the fool doesn't lack the ability to enjoy those riches that he doesn't have. And so if, if wisdom produces wealth and wealth cannot be enjoyed, then what is the advantage of wisdom? Now, Solomon is not questioning the advantage of wisdom in every respect because in chapter 2, he talks about some advantages to wisdom. In chapter 7, which we're going to get to in the coming weeks, Solomon lifts all kinds of advantages to wisdom. But in this narrow area, tell me, what advantage does the wise man have of the fool if the wise man gets his wealth but he can't enjoy his wealth? Does he really have an advantage over the, po- the, fo- the fool? The- does he really have an advantage over the fool? No, he doesn't. Look at the second question. What about the poor man? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? How to walk before the living was a phrase that you would use to describe a wise person. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is knowing how to live in this world. So what advantage then does the poor man have in knowing how to walk before the living? In other words, the poor man may hope to escape his poverty by acquiring wisdom and using that wisdom to accumulate wealth. But if the wealth is accompanied not with the gift to enjoy it, Then what advantage does the poor man have in trying to acquire wisdom? He's asking the second question, the the same question a second in a different way, but he's going back a step. You take the poor man who hopes to get out of his poverty and become wealthy using wisdom, and so he learns wisdom. What is the advantage to him then of learning the wisdom? There really is none, is there? If you are going to be one to whom God has given these riches, but he has not given the ability to enjoy them, then there is no advantage to your wisdom. It's just going to give you wealth that you can't enjoy, and you're worse off in a miscarriage in that situation. Look at verse 9. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility in striving after wind. What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. What you see with your eyes here and now is better than what your heart desires or hopes to have someday. That is the idea behind that phrase. We have a proverb in our own day that kind of expresses this. And maybe it's already run through your head. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? Better to have the bird, to hold on to that, than to long after the two that are in the bush that you can't have. And if you let go of the one, and you don't enjoy or take advantage of the one, and you strive after the other, then you might lose both. So it is better to have a bird in the hand than two in the bush. Better what the eye sees now than what the soul desires, What you hold in your hands is better than what you hope for in your heart that you may never get. And why is that the case? Because though you hope for it, that you might have it someday, you might never get it. You might die before you get it. Or, God forbid, he may give you what you're hoping for and not give you the ability to enjoy it. So Solomon is just simply saying it is better to enjoy what you have in your hand, however little it may be, that it is yours from the hand of God, it is better to enjoy that than to put off enjoying that in hopes of really being able to cash in and enjoy something bigger and better later on. One of Aesop's fables is titled, The Dog and the Piece of Meat, and it kind of illustrates this point. And it's the fable about a dog who is holding a large piece of meat in his mouth and he is fording across a river. And the dog looks down in the river and he sees the reflection of himself in the water. And thinking that it is another dog with an even bigger piece of meat, he drops the piece of meat and immediately attacks the dog in the reflection, only to find that the strong current of the river carries the meat away, and so the dog loses both what he had and what he wanted. That's the point. You set your mind on what you might have, hopefully, someday, and you say, I'm not going to enjoy what I have now, because I might get this later on. Solomon is saying, you're going to lose both. You could lose both. It might be... That you get what you want. And it might be that God gives you the gift of enjoyment with it. So it might be that your hope is fulfilled. But what is even more likely? It's likely that you could die before you ever get it. It's likely that God might even give you that thing and then try and teach you a lesson by not giving you the gift of enjoyment with it. So what the eyes see, is better than what the heart hopes to someday have. This is Solomon's conclusion to this. Just like the dog carrying a piece of meat, so is the man who sets off or puts off or refuses to gratefully and graciously enjoy the gifts that God has given to him because he wants something else or he wants something more. What is Solomon calling us to? To graciously and gratefully and thankfully enjoy what God has given to us, to be thankful for that because what the eye sees is better than what the heart desires. God is the giver of every good gift and he has given us all things to enjoy and we give him thanks and we give him, uh, we express our gratitude to him by enjoying those things that he has given to us. Let's pray. Our Father, you have been good and kind to us far beyond what we deserve. You've given to us an abundance in this land in which we live. We enjoy so much, so many things that we take for granted. We never think about things that other ages and other nations have have never even experienced or enjoyed. And uh, we never want to dishonor you in the way that we use the gifts that you have given to us. We never want to dishonor you by not gratefully enjoying them and delighting them and thanking you for them. So we pray that you would confirm our hearts in these things and encourage us to enjoy those good gifts and remind us each and every day in small ways and in great ways just how good you are and just how much you have lavished upon us. May we present to you hearts filled with gratefulness, gratitude, thankfulness for all that you've given to us, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. For we know that when we stand before you, we will enjoy eternal life. We will enjoy complete forgiveness. We enjoy that righteousness that we enjoy now. We will enjoy those things forever. Forevermore, So fix our hearts on those things, on the world that is to come and not on the things of this world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time.